Good morning, everybody, and welcome to the Sink or Swim podcast. We are your hosts, four fourth-year students from Nova Southeastern University's College of Allopathic Medicine. This is Rob Trenchell. This is Jack Bear. This is Josh Dodge. Jackie Mirza. And welcome. We will try to make today's episode interesting, informative, and entertaining as much as we can. And today's topic will be military medicine. So military medicine is very interesting because most of us don't really know what's going on in yeah, regards to yeah. like how to approach it, what it means, amount of money you make, what the options of everything, right? So Josh is our resident know-it-all behind military resident or behind uh, military medicine considering he just applied for the match and was accepted. Yeah. Congratulations, Josh. Big moves. It's good stuff. Yeah. Hopefully we all are there in the next couple months. Month I know. Month. I know. <laughs> <laughs> it's very stressful times. I imagine it was super stressful for you. I feel like most people, like they, their introduction to military medicine is just a recruiter um, talking to them about money. Um, that makes sense. Yeah. And that's, I think that's most of it, right? Is that, have you, any of you all ever been introduced to a recruiter or military medicine or the HBSP program? No, I do have a friend who is in the military and talks about how his branch, specifically the Air Force, needs a lot of docs. And he's like, hey, you want to like be a doc in the military? And I, I said to him, I think it's a little late for that when it comes to <laughs> applying for residency. I don't know how the process works post. I think you can actually apply post. Even now? Yeah. Oh, you mean uh, post like residency? Yeah. Like during residency they, for. I think yeah. they'll like reimburse. There's like some kind of really? reimbursement thing. Yeah, I think That's so. That's cool. Yeah. Nice. I had some people approach me during college when I was applying to medical school, but I don't think I've had anyone try to talk to me about it as a medical student yet. And I had I had a formal sit down with a with a recruiter before, and uh, I just realized that, or I thought that it may not have been right for me. But why do you think it was right for you? <laughs> well, okay, so well, I'll, so the way that I was introduced, which is I guess how we'll start this. Um, was originally at a AMSA conference in my undergrad. What is AMSA? AMSA is the that's the American American Medical Student Association. AMSA. Okay. Yeah. It's funny because I was part of AMSA as an undergrad and I don't I don't know if I'm part of it still as a as an actual medical student. It's supposed to be for medical students. <laughs> I don't know how that one worked out. Um but yeah, so when I was an undergrad I went to a conference and uh, it was in D.C. <clears throat> back in like 2012 or no, 2015 or something like that. What? Oh. Um, That's a big spread of time. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Is that what she was? No. It was, uh, it was, oh, it was you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So it was back in, I, I want to say like 2015 or something like that. Um, and I... Uh, was going from booths to booths. It's American Medical Stu Student Association. Um, so they have all sorts of things there. <laughs> if we're going to make it through this podcast without Jackie crying. Pull it together over there. Come on, Marza. We can keep this in the bloopers, but keep on going. Is it Jack? Is, it, is Jack the problem? <laughs> Jack's always the problem. Keep going, keep going. Um, 
Yeah, so the booths, the way that the booths basically worked is you just like went to every booth and um, they would t tell you what their thing was and why they were at the, the conference. And there was one where um, they had like a military person in uniform sitting in this um, Vanta conference. Like, what is this? And I was already thinking about going to medical school and they're like, they were telling me all about HPSP. Um, they really sold it financially. Health, yeah, that's a good point. So, um, HPSP, I guess there's two real ways to get into military medicine. One of them is through the actual military medical school. That is USIS, is, is how it's pronounced. I, I don't, it's got, it's an acronym for Uniformed Services, something, something, something. Right. Um, and that's in Bethesda, Maryland. Right um, next to Walter Reed. In the right NIH. next. Yeah. 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 It's it's in Walter Reed. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's actually in Walter Reed. So um, they probably do all the rotations in Walter Reed. No. You would think that, but yeah. they don't. Huh. They uh, I, I met several of them um, rotating around the, uh, the fourth year circuit and stuff. But um, they do their first and second year at, in Maryland, and then they're the rest of the rotations they'll rotate quite a bit but one of the more popular rotations is actually in texas so i guess they get you started early with the whole moving around the country thing because the uses students they don't do rotations in some kind of localized area they are all over the u.s is that just it's, because of volume of students that they couldn't accommodate them all at one site or? <clears throat> no I, I think it's i think it's walter reed sounds like I mean it is a really nice medical facility and everything but they don't have that much in terms of medicine like what they do take care of they've got good things mm. I think surgery is probably one of the things that they do pretty well I could be wrong though do you know do but, they have the same financial benefits as someone like going to a dedicated military medical school versus getting the HPS HPSP scholarship at regular medical school they get slightly different benefits I don't know if their pay is any different, I think they actually get paid regular active duty officer. We could look this up if we want to, but they they, um, they definitely have different benefits. Um, and their payback is different as well. Um, they have to pay back I think, seven years for their four years of medical school. Hmm. Um, so it's a big commitment to do that, um, to, do, to do that route. And most people that do that route are pretty dedicated to... Uh, to the military. Oh, we're gonna look it up. Yeah. We'll, we'll we'll I guess we'll look at it up. We'll look it up later. It looks like it's a little bit more complicated to unearth than I thought. Um, but something that Jack had mentioned earlier was um, he he or you had said it too. It, he's an A military medical school. So USIS is the only. It's the only one. The only one. It's the only one. Yeah. Okay. And are there like schools around the nation that are, I guess, more amenable to military medicine itself or is does everybody just kind of have the same number of hands in the pie i think everyone has the same number of hands in the pie um i think the military the civilian route um uh, or not the civilian route but the hpsp route um has really designed itself to just integrate right into any medical school i mean it has to be accredited in the u.s and stuff like that but um there's nothing really different about the most of your medical school experience if you're an HPSP versus not HPSP, which you all know because I've basically just been hanging around you all the whole time. So it's been nice. <laughs> yeah, so it hasn't been much different. Um, whereas the, uh, the the military medical school, it's different 
immediately. Uh, you're you're in uniform. You're you're saluting people. There's you know all sorts of stuff. You're introduced to military life in a much more immersive way, kind of out the gate. I actually used to um, I used to volunteer at a morgue for uses. So you know when um, everyone does the anatomy lab, all the cadavers have to be cut up and dis- dissected and stuff. And I used to volunteer in the morgue that we we would do exactly that. We get all the bodies and then we would like dissect them and stuff. And it's kind of interesting. So I got to see the the way that the uses kids do anatomy lab. And it's very similar. It's nothing tremendously different. But um, anyway, yeah. So that's the military medical school route uses you 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 probably get paid a little more um i think active duty right out the gate um and uh you're injured you're kind of in the military from the get-go um and uh you you pay back seven years and then there's the hpsp route and the hpsp route is once you're accepted into a u.s accredited um medical school then you can apply for the hpsp scholarship and um it's not particularly competitive to get it's not like you apply and you really hope that you're going to get it i'm sure some people apply and they don't get it for some reason or another um what do you think those reasons would be i I think mostly medical i see yeah the there is a massive um barrier into the military generally speaking um that has to do with that whole medical clearance thing um and in fact, a lot of people, um, when they're going through the military, people who are in the military will tell them that they should really minimize the less serious things that they have medically because it's such a scrutinous procedure that you could spend a couple years just getting all the paperwork together um, for your, you know, that one time you took melatonin. Yeah, you know, <clears throat> yeah that's what the recruiter was telling me when I was like going to possibly sign up for it. Hmm? Gotta be louder, Jack. Okay, thank you. So <laughs> that's what the recruiter was telling me. Basically, it was a huge checklist of any possible medical condition you could have. And she told me, she said, do not report if, if it's not like serious or ongoing because you're going to have to get medical records for pretty much anything. Like, yeah, I had a, a pretty bad cut that put me in the hospital probably when I was in sixth grade and if I reported that that I was hospitalized then I would have to get all the hospital records for that oh yeah so yeah I had like a doctor once when I was a little kid I got a rash after taking some amoxicillin in the context of a sore throat and um he just wrote it off as an amoxicillin allergy never thought about it twice and then when it came to the military when it came time for military do you have any allergies yeah I'm allergic to amoxicillin and they're like well, you have to produce the paperwork. And I showed them the little thing that said that I had a, uh, um, uh, an oxycillin allergy from my primary care physician. He, and he was like, no, 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 you have to go to an allergist. You have to get the, the whole oh spiel. Um, just, just because you said you have the allergy. It was like several months <laughs> worth of, of appointments. Wow. So it's a, that's a major barrier and it's not an HPSB barrier. It's a military barrier. Um, in general and that's overwhelmingly the reason that people won't be able to to get the hpsb scholarship i don't think there's enough people um to reject people for like um academic reason you know not like not being competitive enough to get the the scholarship um 
or at least I've never heard of it. Everyone I know of that's applied has has gotten it, provided they check all the other kind of technical boxes. So interesting. I wouldn't have known that. Um, I wouldn't have known probably the next hour and a half what's going to happen here. Also, <laughs> but um, another question is: so you apply for the HPSP, you say you get it. Are there other barriers to like completing being a part of the the program? Like, do you have to oh, do? Yeah like a physical fitness test or things like that they actually do your physical fitness test there so there's the first there's just all the paperwork you have to get from the military and then they'll they'll actually send you to a military doctor station where the whole bunch of people from all walks of life all trying to get into the military and they they have just a whole morning of physical set up for you things like a doctor's going to look at you know, in your mouth, look at your eyes, things like that. And then there's one point where you have to squat in your underwear um, and like duck, duck, was it waddle? Yeah, duck walk, but like crouch down across the, it's like some kind of What possible reason because they have to do that? (laughs) (laughs) I don't remember. At the time it made sense to me. Um, I don't know why you're in your underwear and you're in a room full of people also in their underwear. I don't know why they strip you down like that. I, I wonder if it's like a, so the doctor can see if you have any deformities or something like that, but it sounds a lot there like easier ways to do that. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's a really in hindsight, kind of a weird thing, but it, it happened. That's <laughs> it sounds like you're being conscripted. Yeah. Like you're lined up against the wall and like, yes, no, yes, yes, no. Like it seems. Yeah. Yeah. Bad. <laughs> um, we have one guy, I think we have one guy that failed it as well. Um, in the, uh, in the whole crew, huh. and luckily, I don't think there are any. I don't think there are any girls, um, in that group. I don't know how they would do that. Maybe they'll do it separately or something. Because you have to get down to your underwear, and so they might do it separately. I don't know. But either way, that's um, that's the big that's the big thing. Um, they'll look at your physical fitness in that way. You have to do push-ups and stuff as well. Um, right there in front of the doctor. So. Um, that's the, the whole physical entry thing. They look at your BMI and every, all that stuff, your eyesight, that kind of stuff. Um, take your blood. Yeah. It's, it's like a very all encompassing physical exam kind of morning and they're, and they treat you there. You're not their patient. (laughs) It's very (laughs) obvious. Uh, they treat you like you're in the military. They'll yell at you and all sorts of stuff. And you're just there. you, You think you're there at the doctor's office, but. Like they don't talk to you normal and you're not allowed to talk the whole time. Like you have to be quiet the whole time. And if you like start to whisper something like that, they'll yell at you. And then if they need you to enter a room, they'll yell at you. It's oh, very, is that like, how you're going to have to conduct your physical exams too? No, no, <laughs> no, no, no. Unless I'm, unless I'm stationed at one of those, then I don't know. I hope not. Um, <laughs> Practice now. Yeah. <laughs> no, but I, I'm probably going to be in a in a regular like emergency oh, room, mm-hmm. so my patients won't get yelled at. Can you at imagine me. getting yelled at in the emergency room? Right, <laughs> like, like you're just, my abdomen hurts, and they're like, "Stop talking!" <laughs> <laughs> I know. You came in for what? Go home. <laughs> Squat. <laughs> in your underwear. <laughs> Duck walk. <laughs> so this sounds like a both very comprehensive and also very judgmental, possibly appropriate introduction to the military yes so. yeah <laughs> it's definitely an introduction to the military no doubt about that yeah um and that's that's mostly it if you pass that physical 
and you had all your papers. You could get all the paperwork first, and then they send it to a board. And if the board approves your paperwork, then you go to this – you make an appointment for this morning of physical stuff. And if you pass that, which most people do, um, then you, you're good. And then they'll send their positive physical exam to the board, and then the board will say, this person passes medical, and that's really the big barrier. Um, once you're past that point, it's just um, you know a question of logistics is the rest of it. Like they'll eventually get you in the next like month or so. They'll get you um, signed up and ready to go. And actually, when I uh, when I uh, took my oath in, um, I swore in rather. I uh, I had my dad, who is an officer in the Navy, or at least retired officer in the Navy. He he. Um, got in his like full garb and like swore me in to the military. That's nice. Wow. Yeah, it was really cool. A handing of the torch. I'm yeah, like yeah. So yeah, that was my that was my introduction. Um, the way I heard about it was this booth, and um, they told me a little bit about it, and I said, okay, well, I I hate debt, and me- medicine looks really expensive. Um, and especially the school I went to. So, you know. <laughs> It's expensive. It is. Um, So I was already highly considering it at that point. Um, And then actually I I interviewed here at Nova and there is a – you know how they – in the interviews they have um, students that will come in Mm -hmm. and like talk to you and stuff like that? Yeah. You all probably did that actually. Rob, you did that, right? Yeah. It's a part of the admissions committee. It's fine. Yeah. Yeah. So Haley was somebody who was in the admissions committee and she was, she's military and she was, I was already telling her that I was considering it. And then she was telling me all about the the benefits of going air force specifically, which we can get into. I think that's part of our topics somewhere differences between branches. Yeah. So we can get into that a little later. But um, she really sold me on that one. And the big, the big selling point was that in the Air Force especially, they, they, they let you have more say over whether you go into a military residency or if you go into a civilian residency. And once I didn't feel like I was closing professional doors into the future, I was like way on board. Because that was my big reservation was um, in a lot of the other branches – if you do the scholarship, a lot of specific specialties and a lot of specific residencies are closed off the moment you sign the paperwork. Mm. Um, and the Air Force is is way more friendly to the kind of your professional aspirations. So at that point, I was sold and I, I went ahead and did it. It seems like so. a huge draw to particularly the Air Force. Yes. And yeah. potentially a detriment to getting recruits from other branches of the navy why would they not pick that up i don't think a lot of people know Mm. to be honest who's going to tell them not the recruiter (laughs) (laughs) yeah so yeah 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 the the i never heard about that uh before i didn't even wouldn't have even thought to ask because i thought that they all the military would have treated residencies the same way and that's just not correct um they don't even have the same options for residencies either it's um it's a lot. It's a lot different between the branches, and you would think that I know we we could almost just take that topic down. I mean, we, we'll we'll just do it Let's if go you for want. It. Yeah, we're here. <laughs> yeah, we're already at this point. Um, 
yeah the the big reservation i think one of one of a couple big reservations people have going to the military is that residency thing because the um the military residencies each branch has their own residencies some of them share residencies but um like the air force and army have a shared one shared location if you're in the army you can go to bamsey and if you're in the air force you can go to bamsey if you're in the navy what you can no- oh brooks medical B- B- brooks army medical c <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, something like that. Yeah. Is this like a very popular residency that a lot of people are trying yeah. to imagine too? Okay. If you do doximity and you look at reputation um, for residencies, uh, Bamsi is on that list, and it's pretty high ranking. I think it's the number one ranking in Texas, um, and it's it's like pretty pretty high ranking reputation. Um, I don't. <laughs> I didn't choose it, but <laughs> but lots of people do choose it, yeah. um, and uh, the that's kind of the the shining gem for the army. And what I've heard from a lot of the people that I ran into in who are doing HBSB in the army is that a lot of the other residency options for the army are, are these kind of like not I would I don't want to say tertiary care, but they're not. Trot like big trauma centers with academics and you know complicated cases and you know it, they're not like that. Um, and this is specifically for this the, for each, like one branch, the army. Yeah, the army. Okay. Yeah. Um, so if you're in the army, um, you've got you know maybe four or five choices. I'm I'm doing emergency medicine, so um, you have you know maybe four or five choices in the army for residency as a military match. And one of them is like a nice, like a real good hospital. Um, and then a lot of the other ones are these kind of low, lower ends. So I've been told. Um, so the with the Army, you're really limited on like great residency choices. And you might, you might think, well, maybe I'll do civilian. And the army does allow some people to do civilian, but they're much less willing to do it than the air force. The air force will bit basically just l- let you choose, and we can get into how the the air force breaks down the the um, the match and everything like that. And I imagine it's similar across the um, across the branches, but um, yeah, the the air force the options for for residency you have BAMC right and. A lot of people in the army want BAMC, but not as many people from the Air Force want BAMC because there are options. And BAMC's great, but it's you know not it doesn't it's not everyone's cup of tea. Um, so m- many people in the Air Force they will choose one of the other ones because basically all of the residencies in the Air Force are level one trauma centers that have you know. 100,000 patients a year and stuff like that. And so um you don't have to choose the the big shining gem of the of the military um if you're in the Air Force because the Air Force has like these nice civilian partnerships where they'll they'll have like the one I'm going to um the University of Las Vegas, University Nevada Las Vegas, um which is a civilian academic center has a partnership with the military so that their their residency is half military half civilian 
and everyone does the same exact thing. So you're doing like 90, over 90% of your um, rotation is at the only level one trauma center in Nevada that also is a county hospital that takes over 100,000 patients a year, and they've got everything under the sun at that hospital. Um, we got a shameless plug for UNLV's um, military medicine program. Yeah, yeah. Josh Dodge. Yeah, so. <laughs> Big fan over here. <laughs> well, I'm going there, so this it makes sense. No, that I know. <laughs> but not only that one, though, um, and that's all, actually not many people, people's not many people want to do that one and the reason for it is because their work hours are um like they'll do 12 hour shifts and they'll do the same number of shifts but 12 hour whereas like bamsey for example do eight hour shifts the same number so some people want that kind of the easier uh, residency but i was specifically choosing a residency where i felt like i would get the best training possible and that's that's where i thought but um they have one that's UC uh, Fresco, I think is the name of it. Fresno. It's, Fresno. it's in Fresno. There you go. Um, it's a really, it's a really big. It's the only one I really didn't want to go to, and it's just because of its location. But it is, it's probably the the highest reputable um, residency in the in the military, and it's Air Force only, um, and has a again civilian partnership, and. Um, you get like you get really top-notch training there and so there's you know there's bamsey where kind of the shining gem of the army but then there's unlv and then there's uc fresno or i'm gonna have to look that one up if, if i keep getting it wrong <laughs> pretty sure it's fresno <laughs> okay well fresno is definitely a place i don't know if that's the if that's the um the or- organization I have a partnership with or not but it's in california um for sure <laughs> i'll learn more about it I'm sure after this podcast at this point. Um, And then there is one in Ohio that's got a really good um, civilian partnership. And uh, and then there's a new one in Texas as well. So all of San Antonio is basically military at this point because the Bamsies, there's two trauma centers that like run the town and one of them is Bamsey. And then the other one is UT San Antonio and UT San Antonio just opened up um, some slots for military. So the Air Force has got all these options, and none of them are bad. Like, they're all really good options, um, unlike the, unlike some of the other branches. And then I've heard the Navy, and I, I know the least about the Navy because they really separate themselves from the Air Force and the Army. Um, but I've heard the, Air, the Navy is the most prescriptive with what you do and where you go. Um, they're the least likely, so I've been told, the least likely to let you in to um, a civilian, like, it's you pretty much need God to sign a, a waiver for you, um, and uh, the and they're the most willing to tell you to do a specialty that y- you maybe not, don't want to do. So I've been told. So um, I don't know. So that kind of and and the Marines just use the 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 Navy for their medicine. So so this might be an ignorant question, but are you are able to pursue any type of subspecialty in the military or you could only choose from a certain subset? Certain ones are more in demand. There's certain subsets. Yeah. Um, again, the same, that same kind of spectrum of, it's probably, the spectrum is basically Navy being most prescriptive, Army being in the middle, Air Force being very non-prescriptive. They'll let you kind of decide for, the, you have the most degrees of freedom. Um, some things are not in high demand in the, in the military things like, 
Obi-Gain or dermatology. dermatology one of them? <clears throat> I know. Oh, my, your friend? Yeah, my buddy was um, going for derm with the army, and I think there were six spots total Ooh. for the whole army. So yours is not even showing. Are we still? Are we still recording? Yes. Okay, because I don't see the. Oh, mine just just beeped, but yours isn't beeping at all. All right. Well, there's. We got lines on the line thing. Okay. Oh, they, it, the mics can pick them up. Okay, cool. Keep All right, lines on the line thing. Yeah, so six spots total for Durham and the entire army, so that makes it pretty tough um, when there's so many more spots in the civilian world. But there are a lot less people going into army, so you got to take it with a grain of salt. Yeah, I wonder yeah. what that percentage of people going into Durham in the army looks yeah. like the yeah. pe- percentage of people going into Durham in the civilian world. No kidding. And some of those are different. Um I think surgery is a little easier to get into in the military than it is civilian because there's such a high demand for surgeons in the military and there's a high demand in the civilian, but the military outdoes the demand. And so they want people to go into surgery. Whereas, um, I'm sure pediatrics is kind of tough to get into in the, the military. I could be wrong, but, um, it's, they differ and some of them, only a little bit and some of them a lot. I think emergency medicine is maybe a little harder to get into in the military than it is um, as a civilian. Um, but that's that's kind of the breakdown. Um, not all the specialties are open to you. And I remember emailing them because I wanted to do a ERIM kind of dual residency. I, I really liked that idea. And they just sent me an email back that said, we don't have a demand for that in the military, so you you can't do that. Um, later, I discovered that what you what I probably could have done was just applied the civilian route, um, put civilian as my number one option, which we'll get into, and then um, hopefully got into one of those programs. Um, but I don't know what would – I don't know the details of how that would work out. Um if if somebody would like come take me out of the program or what but either way um that's kind of my understanding of they they don't they don't let you just do anything they have to have a demand for it and the difficulty of getting in ha- is related to the, their demand because if they don't have high demand they're not going to want you to do it so there's not sure. going to be that many spots open yeah it's like their quotas change every year basically yeah mm. so yeah back to like my buddy that was going for Durham in the army so there were 36 <laughs> people going for Durham for six spots and then you like think of that like oh that sounds like it's just like any ordinary interview because that's how typical Durham spots work is I don't know, 60 people are interviewed for a program for six spots but then those are the only six spots. So you're like bumping down from a 70% match rate in Durham in the civilian world down to like a 16% match rate in the army. So that is your friend in army? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Interesting. I wonder. Yeah. So the demand is, is definitely different. Um, yeah. So you were saying earlier that EM you feel has the highest demand or the demand might be higher in the military than it is in the civilian world is that what you were kind of getting at no I well they definitely have a higher demand for them but they also have a very high supply of people applying so what I've been told is that um, because so many people who do military medicine want to do EM specifically um, that 
it's a little harder to get into EM through the military route than it is to get EM the civilian way. Um, neither of them is particularly difficult. And EM isn't one of the highly competitive um, specialties. So most people can, if they want to do EM, most students can do it. Um, but, you know, if you're on edge, if you're an edge case, um, then it might be a little harder to do the military way. Yeah, I met someone along my interview trail who was military medicine. I think he was Air Force, and he was interviewing for civilians, also civilian residencies, also for ortho. But he was telling me last year they had more ortho spots than applicants. Yeah. So, oh, that's a great example. So yeah, ortho so it's surgery. Like, yeah, so that's what I'm saying. High this. demand, low applicant pool, and like it's almost guaranteed that you could get into an ortho yeah. residency as opposed to the civilian world. But it's also luck of the draw. Like that year, those people were really lucky that there were so many ortho spots available and not a whole lot of people yeah. applying to it. Is there a place to see that? Is there some sort of database you can look there at? There is. The only problem is it's really difficult to get a hold of it. It's not readily available. Um, I got it from. Who sent that to me? I think a, I think an actual program director sent it to me. Mm-hmm. Um, the one at Bamsey, the 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 program director at Bamsey is phenomenal. Um, I mean, they're all they're all phenomenal, but this this guy is <laughs> on another level. Um, and I I emailed him about wanting to know more about the residencies and stuff like that. He just sent me all this information, and it was it was he was like an open book. So he it gave a breakdown. This is how many people. This is how many slots we have. Um, this is how many people are matching into them. These are the locations of where they're going. Things like that. And as you might guess, um, some of the surgical specialties, like I said, they're in high demand, right? But a lot of the surgical specialties make a lot of money. So people who want to do orthopedic surgery, right? They know before they apply to HPSB. I'm going to be making a lot of money in the civilian world, whereas in the military, you make, you don't make tremendously different. You know, you'll make one hundred twenty, one hundred thirty thousand dollars. Like, as a physician, that's what you'll make, um, it, roughly. And it doesn't matter if you're an ER doc, and it doesn't matter if you're an orthopedic surgeon, right? And then so, a lot of the people who do orthopedic surgery, they see the HBSB and they'll say it's not a good, it's not a good return on investment. So not a lot of them will will apply for the HPSB, but that means that not a lot of the people, like he was just saying, not a lot of people that do or want to do orthopedics are in the military. So if you're, if you really want to do orthopedics and you're, and you feel that you're not that competitive, well, there's a very high demand for it in the military because it's a surgical specialty. And because it's usually pays so much in the civilian world, there's not a lot of people doing it. So you'll get, you know, six slots and there aren't even six applicants, you know, so it's, um, so you can easily slide your way into a really difficult field through doing the military if you know those kind of those details. Um, I'm sure some of the other ones are like that too. <laughs> and now we know these details. Yeah, yeah. So thanks for that. <laughs> wow. Um, <clears throat> so it sounds to me like the supply and demand is much different, in, at least on the you know, matching side, yeah. uh, in military. Uh, is the application process itself a whole lot different? Or is it? Like, oh yeah, like ERAS, like like what? What do you do? So they all treat it a little differently, and I don't know to what extent, like how different they really are. The Air Force has everybody do the ERAS, which for people who are listening who don't know, ERAS is the kind of the civilian equivalent, like residency 
application platform. Um, everyone that does civilian goes through ERAS. They fill out one big application, and then that one application will go sent out to all these different programs. That's kind of how the civilian route works. Um, the military has um, mods. And the Air Force makes everybody do both. You have to do the ERAS and you have to do the mods. Um, the way that the mods work, and it's actually really annoying, and they should they should definitely change this if there's ever a way to do it, um, is you have to be on a military... Um, oh, are we still recording? Okay. Um, they have to, you have to be on a military internet, whatever. Like you have to be on a base, which people who are HPSP... When are you ever on a base, right? You're, you, the likelihood that you're even close to a base is not that high. So it's kind of tricky because you have to submit everything into mods, but you can only get onto mods if you're on a military base. Into mods, rather. Um, and they have kind of the similar things. Um, instead of the ERAS has you kind of type up your own little... Um, or type up your resume into their format so they have like you know write all your experiences here here's your hobbies and interests and stuff like that whereas the military has that section and then they advise people to just literally have a pdf of your resume and attach it to the, your mods things so don't bother filling out all these things just give us your pdf version of your resume so it looks nice and formatted and stuff um and then you you do the resume and then um, there's a big f fill out form that they have that you have to fill out. Um, and it has all sorts of stuff like your name and your, your preferences for where you want to match and stuff and all those kind of details um, go in that, that pre-filled format. And so that's pretty much the big two things that you need to apply out the gate and they have a deadline for it in the air force and i believe the army as well well it's at least the air force if you just typed in air force residency application um there'll be a link that shows up actually we could do it do we have the internet yes, i can show it i can show it to you to type? um just exactly what i said just air force um residency application GME application instructions. For, so the first link that isn't an ad takes you to this page right here, and this is everything. Um, the medical operations data systems website is mods. Um, that's how you click that link and you would get taken to mods. Um, and if you do it, we'll see. It's thinking. Yeah. It should eventually come to the conclusion that you're not on a military base. Maybe that's why I was thinking. So and maybe hard. yeah, it's definitely thinking big, and it might just sit there spinning for yeah. infinity. I don't know, but it'll never take you there. Good. It, it'll never take you to the mods. <laughs> um, <laughs> you you want to go to mods? Is that what? You <laughs> <laughs> um, so you have the and then the application documents is is kind of the first set of links. Um, those are the two things: the DoD application, and then your kind of your time timeline and checklist the timeline checklist has all of the forms due by like their specific date so the first thing due august 31st is that gme application and then your cv and it has to be submitted to, pot, to mods <coughs> by the 31st of august um and then 
that's like the big thing. And then everything else, all those forms, and there's a lot of forms, they're all like these technicality forms. Mm-hmm. Um, things like your step, your um, step scores, your medical school transcript, your personal essay. Oh, actually, your personal essay is a big one. Um, so never mind. <laughs> that's, that's not a technicality one at all. Um, your dean's letter, um, all that stuff is due at, you know, they have it here, due at that time. This is nice. And all that has to be submitted to mods. Um, if you don't have access to mods because you're not a military base, then you have to email it to this special email, which they have on the other page as well. Um, and I think they have it like as, yeah, the physician education, actually it's that one, right? If no, no, uh, physician education branch organizational email. Um, in, in the paragraph right there. Yeah. So check this out. It'll bring you to your, um, your mail. Oh Lord. (laughs) Well, regardless, brought me to my mail, which is brought up a quizlet. (laughs) (laughs) Military's hacking your email. (laughs) Um, but yeah, so you'll have to email it to them. The one piece of detail, if someone's listening to this and they're really trying to learn the, the nitty-gritty about this, it's okay to do some of the the forms, like your essay and your um, um, statement of understanding. It's okay to send that to the email. It is not okay to send the GME application and your resume to this email. I mean, you can do it, but what will happen is that somebody on the other side of that will read your resume and and take out of your resume all the details they think is important and put it into their pre-filled form. Mm-hmm. So it's not going to look oh. like a nice, neat resume. It's going to be this kind of jumbled mess. It's God only knows what's, what's going to come off of your resume and onto your application. It might not be everything. So highly recommend going to a military base and do, and submitting to mods. And there are ways to do that, like rotations and stuff, you're on military bases. And so you can have everything ready. But, and to go so that when you're on the on base you can submit all this stuff but do not submit your resume to the email they will do it but it won't will not be to your benefit speaking of that was there a for people who might want to apply um, and do military residency when would you say kind of within your medical school training you would have to make that decision one way or another for the whether to go civilian or or yeah, just in order to like make this process go as smoothly as possible, when would you have to make that choice? Well, if you're in the eight for people who are in HPSP or people who are not, because would there be an option if you weren't HPSP? Okay, I don't, I don't think so. Okay, I'm, short of talking to a recruiter and being and saying something in effect of I, I want to do this and say I'm like a second year and I'm like I desperately want to do military medicine. No one talked to me about it. Can I please apply? Yeah, you, you could talk to a recruiter, and they will take you, um, but they'll take you just as a regular HPSP. I don't know what happens when you're basically done with medical school. I don't know I don't know exactly what that looks like. I know there are ways to, to like, join the military and, and get compensation mm-hmm. after medical school. I just don't know the, the nitty-gritty details about it. Um, okay. But if you're in HPSP, then you just need to make your decision um, – Logistically, you have to make your decision by the time that applications go. But practically, if you want to do military residencies, you want to rotate at the spots. And so you really need to know probably in the middle of your third year okay. because you want to start preparing for 
uh, away rotations, which means you have to start securing them. You have to email the program directors, get the slots, um, you know, kind of the V-slow thing in the civilian. You have to do that in the military as well. And that all kicks off around like November of your uh, third year. Do they have so. requirements for you have to do a certain amount of like military rotations in order to? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. That's a good question. You're supposed to do, uh, I think, three active duty tours um, in medical school, I think. Okay. Um, and what is an active, active duty, duty tour? tour? Yes. <laughs> active duty tour is when you move. So when you're in HPSB, you're in reserve status while you're at medical school. Um, and that's because you're doing medical school. So you're really not doing too much military things. The majority of the time you're in medical school is you're just, you're just like a regular civilian in medical school. There's really no difference except for these active duty tours. The active duty tours are moments where you'll get shipped off somewhere, um, and you will be full-time military. You'll be doing whatever they want you to do. Um, in your first year, in the summer of your first year, if, if you applied for the first year, you will be doing your officer training school probably. Um, there's there's flexibility. You can do officer training school whenever you want as long as you do it before uh, residency. But a lot of people do it either in their first summer or their last summer. They'll do... I'm sorry, continue. They'll do the officer training school, which is basically like the boot camp, but for officers. Is that was your that question? That was my yeah. exact question. Yeah. Thank so you. they'll have you march around. You got to like do cadence and you got to salute, learn to salute and everything like that. And so... Um, all of that's encompassed in, in this, like, I don't know, five to six week um, course. And during that time, you're making after duty pay, so that's nice. But you're like, you are, you very, you feel very much like you're in the military because you're in the military, you're on active duty, and you're surrounded by military people doing military things. Um, and then you'll finish that up, and then you'll go back to civilian life to continue your medical school training. And you're supposed to do three of those kinds of tours. One of them is going to be, your officer training school and then two of them are going to be pushed off until your last year and your well yeah until your fourth year beginning your fourth year because you'll do rotations what the away rotations that civilians do in their fourth year is is called an active duty tour for military because we'll go to a military base and we'll go do a rotation at their <coughs> facility and that's where I you know you all know I went to Vegas at one point because I was rotating at the residency I want to go to. And then I did um, San Antonio and went to BAMC. So do you have to do like only two? Is looking, doing more frowned upon? Is I tried to do more. They wouldn't, it depends on the program. Um, I asked Ohio, the one in Dayton, Ohio, if they would take me on as civilian. You can only do two active duty tours, but some of them allow you to do kind of a, a non-ADT rotation. Um, the Haley, the girl in, in the year above us did that. She did a two, two surgery rotations and then she did a, uh, active duty surgery rotations. And then she did a third one at Ohio actually, that was not an ADT. She didn't get paid to do it. They didn't accommodate her travel, anything like that. Cause normally active duty tours, they pay you active duty pay, which is like a nice, it's really different in this way because the military's like kind of paying for everything and whereas the the non ADT is kind of like the regular V slow option where you just pay for everything out of pocket. Um so I tried that in Ohio and they the 
I wasn't talking to the surgery group though. I was talking to the, the, the emergency medicine group and they said liability is not something that we take on. And, um, like we're just, we're, we're not going to approve that. You, you can do an ADT here, but you can't do a regular, uh, like non ADT here. So I can only do two. Um, but some people have done more depending on the program, whether they're going to take you on or not. Um, so yeah, that's kind of the, the rundown for what did we originally talk about? Was it application or was it talking about uh, differences between? It was application process. Yeah, kind of going backwards. Yeah, I know. Which, which is okay. I mean, you know, <laughs> it, it's a direction. So we that's kind of where we started. I have um, another question, kind of related to that. Yeah, yeah. Switch topics. Um, so are you are the letters of recommendation similar? Is one question, and then another is: Do you approach your personal statement differently? Talking kind of about not just why you want to pursue, say, emergency medicine, but also are you incorporating why you want to do military? Yeah, you you it, you it really should. I mean, you can write whatever you want in your personal statement, but, but you it's highly <laughs> recommended. Yeah, it's highly recommended that in your military uh, application for military residencies, you should include in that some detail about why you want to do military medicine specifically. Mm. Um, so... Not that that, uh, not that it's going to be the end of the world if you don't, but it's better. It's in your interest if you do. And actually, if we're talking about the application, we could just do the whole breakdown of how this thing works. Sure. Um, so it, I interviewed at Ohio, and the program director and uh, the program directors are just amazing in the military, in my opinion. Um, but he, in our interview, he basically said do you all have any questions it was first a little group interview uh, where he kind of gave a brief presentation and he basically just said what do you all have any questions about um how any of this works how, how the application process works and he was just open book he's like you can ask me anything and i mean you can ask me anything about the application process i will tell you it's i'm being very like upfront and transparent with you and so we asked them and the way it basically works is they've got some categories and it's a point system so they'll have like your step scores and a board will decide what step scores constitute what points but you'll have you know zero one two and three points or something like that maybe zero one and two um and depending on where your step score lines up to where the lines are drawn that year um you'll get a point assigned the more points is better um so if you have a really high score if you if you have a really high score you'll get two points in that category or if you have a really low score you'll get one or zero points and then you'll have um, your, what else they have? Military readiness is one of them, which is basically just how did you do on your away rotations? How did people receive you? What were your, you know, how's your application look? Um, how were your interviews going? Things like that. That Everyone will kind of, all the program directors will collectively pull together, you know, points for that as well. And there are some other points, but... Um, and I wish I could remember all of them, actually, because that might actually be useful for some people. But Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> well, I mean, I know a little bit about this. Um, not the exact points, but what my buddy struggled with in the Army was, um, so it turns everything into, like, an objective category. They try to, like, make the whole process objective um, to grade applicants. So there was, like, a set number of publications that would get you a set number of points. Oh, yeah. So he had 20 or twenty publications or something, like a huge amount of publications. Now, the issue with that is like anything after five, it's going to be diminishing returns. You're taking all of that effort into those 
remaining 15 publications that you could have been putting towards like step towards all sorts of other things doing yeah. well in a ways so i don't know if there's any form that you can find that grading sheet have you ever no seen that? unfortunately no I, i've never seen the grading sheet itself um actually hang on if we go online um i think they have the categories and this is this is as close as you can get um yeah, point system, military, yeah. Military medicine residency, yeah. Let's see if they... Um... Don't click the student doctor network one. <laughs> mm, or Reddit. I'm trying to avoid Click here it. for scoring sheet. I mean, that's... That's <laughs> pretty good. Yeah. Where are we at? Uh, at the second line. Sheet. Up, 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 up. Yeah, there you go. Down? Down one. Yes. There you go. Let's oh. see. They're so transparent about this. It's It's phenomenal. Here you go. So the first category, this is the scoring sheet. So you can literally just, this is the 2005 scoring sheet. You can Google this and, you know, we just did it now. We, I didn't even know this existed. I just guessed it probably did. Um, first category is your step scores. Zero, one, or two. Two is really good. Zero is, is the worst. Um, your clinical years. What is oh it's step one and step two so you get you know get points for each one step two step two is worth uh, three points step one is worth two points um, that is step three is only if you took step three which is for you know because not everyone that's applying to military residencies are uh, fourth year medical students some of them are transitional years and stuff like that so some of them have already taken step three. Um, your residency is for fellowships only post internship that's for um other people potential for success successful practice yeah that's that uh you know that's that potential for successful practice is just they've got a point system on it and it's worth a lot of points it's worth half your points but um it's just everyone's opinion of you basically um this is so boilerplate but also <laughs> so much room for I guess subjective oh yeah approach when it comes to scoring an applicant like the two are preclinical years and clinical years right and that's pretty much it yeah so for people who are applying fourth year medical student like like I was doing right you basically have ten points you've got five of them are coming from everyone's just rough estimate of how they think you'll do as a doctor subjectively and they'll pull it all together all their information and they're just going to give you a scoring a score at the end of it. Um, and then the other five points, two of them come from your step one and three of them come from your step two. And that's all 10 points. And that's the most points you can get, except if you have, uh, applications, you can get additional points. Um, you can get up to four points and, and, um, uh, publications. And, um, I've heard it's really difficult to get four. It's really easy to get zero. You just don't get any publications. And then somewhere between one and three is, you know, up for grabs. And that might be new, um, a, a change since 2005. But that's what the um, guy in Ohio told me. And they are going to give you a score between one and ten, unless it can be a little higher. It can actually be one to 14, right, because you can get 14, uh, four points for um, – um, publications. Uh, publications thank you um, and then everyone has a point and they're going to 
rank list every single student based on their points. The most points goes top, and the worst points is last, and it's sequential from there. Many of them are going to have the same point value, though. How do you stratify within that group? I don't know. Because aren't like a that's not that many points. Like, aren't many of them going to have like eight points? Yeah, I. Uh, that's a good question. I didn't think to ask that. Would it be the interview that it, stratifies you? No, this this what he said was just straight up points. Your point. I don't know how they rank the people with the same points. That's a really good question. Because that's going to be most people know. Probably like a bell curve. Um, well, there was like there was about fifty applicants um, in the EM for military. So it's not going to be a ton of people that have the same points. But I mean, there's certainly a lot of room for that for that to happen. Um, I want to see if we can find something that's not from 2005. It's not 20 years old. (laughs) Yeah, fair enough. Because the preclinical and clinical years all being grouped into two categories. And it's just your step. And it's just step. That's all it is. You also have grading of how you did clinically, like pass, high pass honors, right? You also have... Uh, letters of rec. You, All you of that goes into that last category, one through five. Or but zero that's through awful. Five. I know, but, <laughs> but that's what it is. That's awful. Sorry, no hate, but that's awful. <laughs> there, are, <clears throat> there are a lot of civilian residencies that do this point system also. It's Don't tell me their, that. their own internal point system. It, it, might, it might be a little rough, and there's a lot of room for improvement, but I do like the point system a lot more than just the black box. Because um, the black box, I just never know what's going into it. I say when we look into this, it's a probably a good, good chance to take a nice little break. Do you want to take? Can we take breaks? Yeah. So we are at fifty-seven minutes, and uh, yeah, we'll take a short break. All right. I think we'll let's do that. And we're right. back. Yes. Welcome back, everybody. Thank you for your patience. Um, so we did look up, as Jack suggested, if there is a more recent point system just document for how the military grades their applicants and could not find one so we're going off of a 18 year old document yep um also just wanted to uh, preface this next part and also the previous part that while uh everything that josh is telling us is uh, i'm absolutely certain there's 99 percent truth to it this is largely josh's experience with military medicine as opposed to like any kind of true source material yeah. outside no authority of what, is, right yeah right no authority outside of what we had what we had told you regarding what we found on the military websites um like publications and stuff are not not really a part of this one this is very experience right. based which i think is important yes. yes and i can finish up just real quick on the application process since that's where the conversation we left off on and then Excellent. we can move on to new topics um so once they have that score you know whatever it may be, half of it's just totally how they feel about you. Um, they'll rank lord, rank list everybody, and uh, I don't know how they solve ties. Um, I, <laughs> I never <laughs> – yeah. Uh, it's, a good, it's a great question. I, I wish I would have thought of that. Um, then once they have that, they will go to their number one person on the list, and they will say, what is this person's number one choice? And then that person will get it. And then they'll go, okay – Number two, what's their number one choice? They will get it. And then number three, what's their number one choice? And then let's say that number one and number two went to such and such, and there are no slots left in that residency, right, because one and two took it. When number three also wanted it. Well, now number three 
his number one choice is t- completely full. So they go, okay, well, we can't give him his number one choice. What's his number two choice? He gets that one. And then that's how they do it. So they'll go down. And then so if you're at the top of the list, you can, you, it's very likely you'll get your number one choice. But the further down you go, the more likely it is that your number one choice has already been filled by people above you on the list and that you'll start to bump down your, your rank list. And that is, that is how the whole system works. According to um, the program director, um, when he, he was talking to me about it. Where does your interview come um, in to that point process? So much of this is that last category, your military readiness category or your, or your um, how well they think you'll be as a physician. So that's the, that's the culmination of all of your letters of rec, your interview, like yep. everything that makes you you and not just a number goes yeah. into that final number. Into that final number. That's awful. Yeah. <laughs> Which is a little different because actually what, what happens to be the case is that um, the, the residency, at least the way I understood it, the residencies aren't selecting the students. The students are selecting the residencies. Well, that's supposedly how match works for civilians, no? Well, the difference, I think this is a more general scoring system where it's like entire military-wide system, where it's like you will get your number one choice versus for the match, a program has to rank you number one and you have to rank them. I see. Yeah. Okay. I see. There is no residency rank order in the military as far as I'm aware. Um, so you could theoretically get really high scores on your um on that you know that one military residency you know get a really high score right mm-hmm. and you could easily put your number one match as as some program you didn't even you didn't even rotate in didn't interview at nothing oh okay so you you're not just ranking places that you've interviewed you're ranking any literally any of the military programs any of the military programs oh that's cool yeah that's that's my understanding of how it works and um, so if you're an absolute stud, you can get your number one choice, even if you didn't get in a rotation there. Yeah, it's kind of nice. Yeah, huh. as far as as far as I'm aware, that's how it works. Cool. Um, like Rob was saying, this is this. I'm not the authority on this topic, so um, I, I certainly be wrong about this. But that was my understanding when the program director was telling us, and the program director would also tell us very straightforwardly if you asked, because I asked him, he's like, where, where do you think I land on this list? And he was like, gave me a straightforward answer. Oh, um, after the interview, because the interview was part of the, the whole thing. But, but then um, what's the point of interviewing if you can just rank anybody? I'm sure if you don't, if you don't interview anywhere, then they'll, they'll probably give you a lower score on that, that one point. Oh, I see. Yeah. Okay. It's, it's in your interest to kind of hop through the boxes, I think, so they get to know you as an applicant and stuff so like that. So when you interview at a program, that program will submit a number for you that goes into your collective score as an applicant. Yeah. Okay. I yeah. guess that makes sense. Um, and that's basically how it, it runs. Um, there is like a, I think a slight detail where uh, – the board, which the board is just all the program directors, right? That's the big board, whatever it's called. The oh yeah, there you go. Success in the military match. Emergency medicine is military match is very competitive. Um, this is from Cordum dot org. Yeah, so it's yeah. That's, so just to catch everyone up on the podcast, Rob was looking up, um, kind of validating some of the things that I was mentioning that the military. In the military, it's more difficult to get emergency medicine than if you did it in the civilian match. Um, 
my understanding is neither one is really that competitive. M emergency medicine, like I said, is not a very particularly competitive field, but but it's certainly more competitive in in the military. Um, so I guess lucky for me. Um, oh yeah, now we have to reference it. <laughs> my bad. <laughs> Speaking of uh, emergency medicine in the military versus not, I had a question kind of about maybe when you're making your decision if this would have factored in or not kind of how the people you see in kind of civilian emergency medicine would differ from when you're practicing in the military in emergency medicine. Yeah, they definitely do. Um, so this is kind of, we just move on to scope of practice kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so during my rotations, um, they did, I'll talk about Nellis, the one in Las Vegas first. I did half of my rotation in the in the military hospital, and then I did half of it in the civilian hospital, which is not actually how the residency works. The residency works uh, like over ninety percent in the civilian, and then like you know five ten percent in the in the military hospital. Um, so you get a lot of your training in the civilian world, but as soon as you graduate residency, you're now a military physician. They're going to send you to a base, and the base is going to be a military hospital, and that military hospital is going to be most likely way less acuity, way less patient volume, and way healthier patients. Um, you get a lot of people who are coming in with, you know, moms taking their kids for upper respiratory infections, or you get... Um, oh, because you treat the families as well. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, you get a lot of... Um, young kids that have, uh, I don't know, like musculoskeletal pain or something like that, and they want uh, a note for getting off of order or whatever, their job for a day or two or something like that. There's a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of that. So the kind of medicine that you actually practice in the military um, is not this big, sexy, um, you're you know out in the battlefield and taking trauma, and it's not like that at all. The overwhelming likelihood is that unless you're really gunning for it, you are going to be doing what is equivalent to like a kind of a tertiary standalone hospital hmm. um, in the civilian world, uh, which is at least emergency medicine, which is not particularly fun medicine, <laughs> um, frankly. So that's kind of a trade-off. Um, but having said that, I mean, you treat anyone and their families. And then so there, there, I certainly saw in the military um, hospital, I saw someone have, you know, had, had a stroke for three days before they came in. Oh. Um, I had, um, I think, like a couple surgical emergencies. There were like, there were certainly emergencies there. There's, and there's, you know, everyone, you know, they got the CHF exacerbations. They've got that kind of stuff. So um, they like, they definitely have, it's not, it's not all, it's not like an urgent care. You know, it's really a lot more like a standalone where they'll have some serious things and then they'll have some, a lot of it is just high volume, low acuity mm. kind of stuff. Um, so that's kind of run of the mill medicine. And then there are, there is operational medicine. Operational medicine is the big sexy stuff that everyone thinks about. So with emergency medicine, anyway, there's three big categories you can go into if you want to do operational medicine the first one is um, CCAT 
CCAT is, uh, you have to get a uh, ICU fellowship, I think, to do it. Oh. And basically what you are doing, oh yeah, here we go, operational medicine. CCAT stands for what? Um, good question. I don't know. I know what they do. I just don't know what it stands for. All these acronyms. For. I know. You know the crazy thing about the – this is government in general. It's not even the military specifically. It's all government. Um, they talk in acronyms so much that the acronym loses its meaning and the acronym itself becomes a word. That's so kinda... CCAT is just like the name of the job. It stands for something, but no – like people do know what it means. I don't know what it means. But <laughs> but, but uh, <laughs> um, it's very common for people to use the acronym so much in the government that it kind of loses its acronym i feel like that's kind of a medicine thing like we'll say like ards and like ards is just yeah kind of like a word now, or like yeah, grass yeah. has become its own word it, which mm. is like the word eras i had a panic attack this is a tangent but taylor swift has a concert coming out called eras and i opened it and i was like what kind of awful like medicine meme oh, page no. is this that they're saying <laughs> you know tours named after this like application portal and i'm like no that's a full word on its own <laughs> So, like, I, I do feel in medicine we use kind of a horrible amount of acronyms. It's true, we do. I mean, it makes everything a little bit easier, though, right? Like, you say HEFREF. Like HEFREF, yeah. Heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. It's very long. Yeah. HEFREF is not. Or you say, like, oh, I'm going in for a cabbage, and they're like, salad? And right. And you're like, no. It's actually <laughs> a really big operation. Yeah. So it's cool. I, I appreciate it. And the military is just, a, I think – the the pinnacle of doing that it is such <laughs> it's such a pinnacle of that yeah that's they're all into it so and they and they really they they really like their acronyms like they like saying them too yeah. and they like they knowing <laughs> they like knowing you have no idea what they're talking about when yeah. they say because yeah. <laughs> it sounds so technical um so yeah so this is so operational medicine is is the is medicine for the operators an operator is somebody who's going out on front lines so the operational medicine is the the doctors taking care of the frontline warriors in some way um we're looking here at uh navy medicine particularly um, yeah but i imagine it's the same for so these are the people doing crazy things um i'll i'll tell you a little bit i guess before ccat i'll tell you about another one sauce t sauce t stands for i know right <laughs> special operations surgical team that's the name of uh that's what the acronym stands for it's a six-person team they've got emergency physician they've got a trauma surgeon and then they have support for those two physicians so respiratory therapist icu nurse uh nurse anesthetist and did i say rt already mm-hmm um, and surgical tech. Mm. So that's, Here we go. oh yeah, perfect. Right there. Um, critical. Yep. How do you get on this team? This is hard to get into. Sauce T is actually very competitive. Um, it, you have to apply to it and not only do you have to be competitive, but you have to be lucky because they're not always looking for applicants and you have to be in the right place at the right time when they're looking. Okay. So in your residency around like second or third year um you can apply and if they're looking for people then you can apply if they're not looking for people at the time you're in your second or third year tough luck you're not going huh. um so if they're looking you apply and they will and lots of people do apply and they um they will select who they they think is a good candidate and then you will go to do a week or so of this kind of this watered down navy seal thing it's and I mean watered down. 
the idea is that it's this really rigorous, supposedly, like a really rigorous kind of physical and mental um, thing that they do. And if you pass, then um, then you're on your way to becoming part of the Sosti. They will they'll take your application with your past, um, whatever it's called, selection, and um, yeah, in person selection, um, and then. <clears throat> They will like I guess they'll they'll do no 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 these are two separate selection um, yeah so spring and fall I guess they have a selection possibly have a selection in the spring and then possibly have one in the fall um, and uh, then someone some board will will look at it and determine whether you're going to be part of the team or not and if you get selected it's a it's a big deal because it's hard to get into and um, you will go on so I guess kind of. Uh, something that we'll touch on I think a little bit further down the road here in this this episode but is this an option for you after residency or can yes. you get into this during residency oh I see you I as far as I know you you have to get into this during residency and if you're selected then you can then then you know where you're going when you're done with residency you're going to a SOSTI team um the point of SOSTI, the reason it's called Special Operations Surgical Team, is they will they will ship off to some front line somewhere, and they will they will set up a, a makeshift surgical theater like a mile or two off site of some kind of um, firefight, and what will happen is they will have PJs, which uh, pararescue jumpers or something like that, that will go into the firefight grab trauma patients from the firefight and ship them off and the and sometimes the pjs will ship them off to a makeshift surgical theater that has a six-person team ready to receive trauma patients um and in enemy lines um or behind enemy lines and that that surgical team will stabilize the trauma patient through either trauma surgery or something of the sort and um get them healthy enough to get shipped out on a, on an airplane or a helicopter, but I mean an airplane, real, realistically an airplane, um, to, to some more stable hospital that's, you know, safe and guarded and stuff. And that is, that is sauce tea. That's so they, they do, um, it's a pretty sexy thing, but <laughs> I'm not going to lie. Is something you're going for? I, I'm, I'm considering it. Yeah. yeah. Um, I won't be surprised if I don't do it. Uh, they ship out like six months out of the year, something like that. I mean, it's like a very demanding thing. And so it depends on where my life is really if, if I want to go for it. But I'm sure you get additional uh, financial benefits. I'm sure oh, you get yeah, hazard I'm pay sure. off of yeah, this. Yeah, hazard and, pay for sure. Yeah. There's no way you're not getting hazard pay for that. Um, and sometimes they will have to engage in firefights themselves. You like, have to be adequately trained as well. Yeah. 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 So... Um, that is that is the coolest thing I think that operational medicine really has to offer right there, at least for emergency medicine and probably for trauma surgery as well. Um, uh, or I guess they just have general surgeon, but well, the general surgeon is being a trauma surgeon. Yeah. So, I mean, it sounds like you they wouldn't like have like a fellowship trained trauma surgeon. Then. It would be like a general surgeon that stabilizes. It, it does look like that, yeah. I thought it was a – I thought it, it was isn't a – Isn't it – in the military, isn't it like – a little bit more difficult to pursue fellowships like that could add on to your time it definitely adds it's not harder to, to pursue fellowships but it it is like not a lot of people do it because it adds on to your time 
the actually the way that the payback works this is actually really easy you you for every year that they pay you owe a year back in the in during medical school and then the same exact thing happens to residency for every year of military training and residency they give you you owe a year back but you pay those back concurrently so your first year of being a military physician you're paying back your first year for for um medical school and your first year for residency at the same time so if you have a four years of residency and four years of medical school you only have to pay back four years but if you have four years of medical school and five years of residency then you have to pay back five years so if you get a trauma fellowship a one-year fellowship as a general surgeon or as a trauma surgeon now you would owe six years right and the only the only change for some specialties and surgery is one of them they don't require you to pay back your intern year. So I think the surgeons actually have to pay back five years mm-hmm. instead of six. But um, that's, uh, that's how that works. And then after so, those years, you could, what, you could hypothetically do what? Anything you want. Once you're, once you're done with your payback, you could continue if you want, or you can go and... Like leave re- the military? Yeah, leave the military and go civilian. I see. Okay. Um, so that's, that's after you're done with payback. That's after you're done with the payback. Because if you leave the military, you are able to go to jail. Yes, <laughs> you'll go to a military go to jail. jail. You won't even go to a regular jail. You'll go to a military yeah, you jail. Yeah, once so, you're in it, they own you for a little bit. Yeah. So one of the like military medicine, as far as I'm concerned, or the military in general, there's like a lot of great benefits. Sure. But one of the enormous downsides is that <laughs> you can't quit. You cannot quit. Yep. You are stuck. And if you if you want to quit. Um, and do like something else like you want to change you, you got inspired to be an artist um, that sucks because you're just going to be <laughs> you're going to be a doctor form anyway and if you don't if you decide to fail out of medical school that still sucks because they have one of two choices they can either let you go and you just owe them back all the money that they paid you or and what I've heard is more likely I don't know if it's true or not but they will just give you another job in the military and you are still you were still going to be in the military. <laughs> so, really? yeah. So once you sign that paperwork, they really own you. Um, Even if you're like, I'll give you the money back, then there's, but there's still like, no, you have to stay. Yeah. I, they definitely have that option. I don't know what happens if you, if you offer them the money back, they might take it. I don't know. I, I'm sure there aren't enough cases of this happening. I'm not trying to like look for loopholes. I, I, I'm a yeah, little frightened yeah. of. No, no, I, I, I agree. I think it's really important to, shed light on everything that we know i mean like like i said a lot of this is you know experiential um but still still important and your reasons for uh, someone's reason for not wanting to be enlisted anymore it seems like you're not typically going to be like right in the midst of the fight so it's not really for like i'm in physical danger it might just be that I I want more flexibility or I just don't want to live here or something like that. Or you want more pay as an attending. Yeah, more pay as an attending. Um, That's probably a big motivating factor. Um, But you have to move around a lot. They tell you where to go. You have have your say, right? You can tell them what you want. You can say, like, I want to go to Texas for sure, and then they'll try to move you to Texas or – Yeah, if if they think that they – No, (laughs) Jackson, no. (laughs) Well, they will. I mean – they try to make their doctors happy um and so they're likely to try to give you what you want but that doesn't mean they're always going to give you what you want and Mm. if you want to move to texas and they don't have any need for any additional physicians in texas then they'll just say oh i'm sorry how does 
Nevada sound <laughs> or something like that, you know? Um, so huh. yeah, that's, that's kind of how that whole thing works. Um, and the, and the sauce tea is, is, uh, the, the surgeons, I, it looks like they won't have the fellowship, but, um, or at least they don't need to, but I'm sure some of them do have the fellowship. Um, and, and actually they're, when they're not on the front lines, the Sosti teams are in one of two. Maybe I shouldn't give away too much in this because I don't know um, how much of this is classified. Actually, I don't think any of it's classified. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> I just got that top secret clearance <laughs> from from. Cadet I don't Josh have Dodd. any clearance, so if I, if they it's told me something and I'm not supposed to say it, they didn't bother letting me know. Um, <laughs> but uh, and it's on the internet. It's on the internet, so I'm I'm sure I can say this. Um, it's. <laughs> It's <laughs> <laughs> no, no, let's hear it. I just want to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> now, let's check. Where, where is this uh, sauce tea stationed? <laughs> you give them the exact coordinates. <laughs> uh, let's see. Let's do sauce tea like hospitals or something. Not overseas, not overseas. Just like when they're, he- when they're here. People also ask, where is sauce tea stationed? Davey. Just kidding. <laughs> sauce tea. Maybe Air Force? There's a frequently asked question that says, where is Sauce Tea stationed? Oh, yeah. Let's do that. Where is Sauce Tea stationed? Well, let's go on There we go. This might be another stupid stationed. question just while we're Googling. Um, do you have, like, a, a military title while you're as a military physician? Florida. Or not? What's fly? Like, are you, like, a general or something? Uh, um, wait, hang on one second. I think, that, I think we just found it. Yeah, okay. All right, I can say this. Sure. It's on Google. It is the exact same. We were already there. That's hilarious. But they're assigned to the 24th Special Ops Wing and perform clinical duties at level... Yeah. Okay, so they they have two hospitals. It's the one in Alabama and it's the one in Nevada. And actually, I'm going to the residency that is in... Las Vegas. So the University Medical Center is where my residency is going to be. So, so I'm going get to some be Sauce Tea exposure. I will. Yeah, I've already talked to some people from Sauce Tea teams. Cool. Yeah, I'm sure that was a big selling point for them. Like, oh, we have the Sauce Tea Hospital. We what got the sauce. sauce. They they <laughs> didn't like they didn't hype it up to be honest. Why? Um, oh. Yeah, and I I would have figured that they would because yeah. when I discovered that I was kind of shocked that I discovered it. You know, not through some kind of advertisement. It was just. It might have been for them this page. I don't know. I listened to a couple podcasts about from Sauce Tea members, so that I might have learned it from there. But um, yeah, so they will. So not only do you get to do this really like cool. Um, <laughs> I wanted to use another word, but um, no. I was, anyway, uh, stuff overseas. You get to do really cool stuff overseas, but also when you're at and when you're at uh, at home. Instead of being at one of these like small little standalone hospital things, I mean they're not actually standalones, but they're kind of like standalones. We're all laughing at Jack right now. Ridiculous over here. (laughs) Um, Not only do you get to do the cool stuff overseas, but when you're here, you're training at one of the you know you're training at level one trauma centers, taking on big big cases for trauma, and you're training with the surgeons and stuff. And the reason for that is because they just want you training all the time, and that kind of stuff. So. It's um it's a really good gig because you get if if you're if you're into complex high stakes emergency kind of medicine either from a surgical or a medical perspective, um, Sosti is is the pinnacle of that 
in the military, cool. I think. Yeah. Um, well, that's nice because it seems like, because I know you think that's like the sexiest part of medicine is like being with the sauce tea and all that stuff, but that turns a lot of people off from the military. Like, and it seems like to go into like actual dangerous situations, you kind of have to seek those opportunities rather yeah, than just getting stationed do. there. Yeah. Because yeah. that's like my parents like did not want me doing military medicine because they were so afraid of me getting stationed in like a war zone. Oh yeah, yeah. You, I mean, I'm sure they military likes when people opt to do operational medicine. I don't, I don't know if, I don't know if people are even um, are being forced to go. Maybe if there's a time in great demand, there's certainly nothing holding the military back from forcing you to go. But um, I, don't, I don't think that we're in that situation at the moment. Um, and sauce tea is really the only one I can think of that's front lines. And then the, the one just back of sauce tea is the general surgical team, which is basically the same thing as this, but instead of being on the front lines, making a makeshift thing, they're, they're actually on like some kind of established base overseas. Okay. Um, yeah. General surgical team for air force. A ground, I'm sorry, did I say, yeah, ground surgical team is what I meant. And this is basically like sauce tea light, you know, diet sauce tea. <laughs> Would you have to do this diet prior? Sauce tea. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> huh? Would you have to do this prior to being on the sauce tea team? Like working no, one of these no, bases? No, no, this is, this is just, you do this instead of being, this is another operation. I see. Okay. One of the three operational medicines for, um, emergency medicine. When do you make the decision if you're going to do operational medicine or not? When you graduate residency, you're going to be shipped off somewhere. Okay. And then so that decision is made in that transition between residency. So you get residency. to say, I'd like to do operational or not. Yeah. Oh, okay. So they're not just going to stick you out there. There's nothing that prevents them from doing it. It's the military. But I, my impression is that demand is not high enough where it is right now where people can kind of go where they want to go. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But they only truly own you for like four years, so you kind of have to make decisions close to the end of residency, I would imagine. Yeah. Um, and then the last one, the only one that we didn't discuss so far in the realm of operational medicine, um, which is the one I wanted to start with, was CCAT. And that's just for um, somebody that has a critical care fellowship. They're going to fly in a plane, probably from Germany. If we're in the Middle East for some reason, we'll fly in a plane or maybe in Eastern Europe, um, fly in a plane over to receive a patient and a critical care air transport team. There it is. Um, so they'll fly in that big plane just like that. And they'll pick up patients that are in critical care, like ICU level patients, and they'll fly them back. And while, while, they're in the plane, they need, you know, they're on a vent or something like that, you know? And so there's a physician watching over them as they're transporting. And for the most part, it's actually kind of a, a boring job because mostly what you're doing is just changing vent settings and that's about it. Um, but uh, sometimes it can get more intense. It's an ICU. Who knows what's going to happen in the airplane? And, so you know, mobile ICU, it's, it's a, a ICU in the sky. In the in the sky. Yeah. And things change because oxygen levels and, you know, partial pressures and stuff, they all get funky in, in the air. So all of that plays a role. Yeah. So you get to learn all about that. Um, These are also uh, all specific to the Air Force. Yes. I don't know what, uh, what it looks like in the other branches, unfortunately. I imagine that they have similar things, um, but they might have some different stuff. And, and this is also very specific to emergency medicine and like kind of 
things revolve like critical care is is a big like emergency medicine thing so um i'm sure that there are different routes for other specialties like ophthalmology isn't doing sea cats and ground surgical teams and stuff so likely not not, yeah (laughs) so a lot of emergencies there yeah that's interesting um i think that it's really cool that you have a lot of options following your residency training to go do other things super specialized both medically and sounds like tactically too yeah so yeah that's pretty cool um so during the residency process this is a this is a question that you have listed um i think it, it would be good to go into how how would it be different between a civilian residency and a military residency do you have like the obligations like do you do you have to go to the doctor like more frequently do you like what other just any obligation yeah yeah um so if you're in bamsi <laughs> if you're in bamsi bamsi is a military only hospital so if you go to a military um if you go to bamsi for your residency then you are wearing your uniform every day uh to go to to work um you're saluting everybody although the medical the medical field in general in the military doesn't isn't as strict with their their um um technical like what formalities yeah there's a name for it i can't remember what it's called um but there's a name for all those kinds of things something in courtesies customs and courtesies i think um so all of that is the is the i think it's customs and courtesies um Department of Defense, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. And the customs and courtesies is just the behavior that you're taught in 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 uh, basic training and officer training school. So how to salute, when to salute, how to greet people. Um, so what you learned in boot camp is not necessarily something that's going to be carried over yeah. in the hospital. Not as much. Yeah. Um, and it gets real funky, actually, because uh, there are nurses who are higher rank than some doctors and that can make for an interesting dynamic because doctors are supposed to be giving orders uh, to nurses because there's a natural there's a there's an actual job hierarchy doctors make the plans nurses in many cases implement them in some cases the doctors implement them directly but with the ranking system, you don't have two hierarchies competing with one another. And the military tries their best to make sure that the their ranking hierarchy will um, co- will correlate properly with the the job hierarchy. But sometimes, you know, a nurse stays in there for long enough that you've got like a um, a major or you know, a colonel, <laughs> colonel, five star brigadier yeah, general, yeah, <laughs> who's a nurse. Well, if they're five star generals, they are not going to be a nurse. Yeah, they're in war but, rooms. I get that. But they, um, you could be a colonel, certainly. A colonel who's a nurse. And so they're walking in and they walk into the hospital and who's given who orders here, you know? And how does that how does that medical care look like? Um, so I've seen it in a couple cases where the it looks a little, everything's a little funky. Um, and, you know, I don't, I guess everyone kind of, hopes that no one will press that issue too much because the moment you start referring to hierarchy it's you got competing hierarchies so whose hierarchy wins against who i don't know um but in bamsi you get to worry about those kinds of things 
um, because you are in the military, you're in a military hospital, you're spending all your time there, and all of that is encompassed in that one military residency. And all the other residencies, they're really split mostly uh, towards the civilian side. So they, you know, they claim they're military residency, and they are military residency, but the overwhelming time, over 90% of the time you spend in a hospital, it's a civilian hospital, and you're dealing with civilian nurses and things like that. So just like medical school, that residency time is not spent tremendously different, um, except for um, you'll have like once a month or something like that, you'll have a shift or two in the military hospital. And that's where you dress up in your uniform, you drive to the military base and you sit in the military hospital and you wait for someone to come in with musculoskeletal pain or an upper respiratory infection. And that's pretty much, and you'll like kind of do your time and then and you'll go back to the civilian world. Um, and that's kind of how residency works. The, it's not, so it's not too different from most of them. The one that's the exception is BAMC. In the Air Force, BAMC is the exception, and that's because it's a full-blown military thing. And they will do some kind of – they'll do some cool stuff. Like during my medical school rotation, they had a operational medicine simulation where we had – we were given like an entire fake scenario uh, with fake countries and fake um, political tensions – and we were a team that was dropping in at you know in this place and we're we're part of this country you know behind enemy lines picking up um patients from a war zone and then you know some people would split off and we get paintball guns and we would split off and go drive out into the woods oh yeah drive out into the woods (laughs) and there'd be a patient and then we would be like poised to ambush and then the military team medical team would have to go in and grab the patient um, and like perform the resuscitation while they're getting shot at with paintball guns and stuff and so, the real paintball guns and so in, we were like set up specifically to ambush them so the whole thing's actually like a lot more stressful than you would originally I think it's yeah it's, it's feels like you're I mean it doesn't feel like a war zone but it feels like you're in combat um, and like you learn the details about how that works. Yeah, and in that situation, it's like not to be taken lightly. You treat it as if oh yeah, it's combat. Yep. So that is something really special about BAMSI specifically, where they really will put you through um, operational medicine training, um, and that's what it looks like. And I actually did that. I was, I was one of the people with the, the paintball guns at one point. Um, I, th- I think I had we had like paint paint grenades as well or something like that it was, it was all sorts of stuff they pay you for that that's an active duty tour yeah they pay, they pay <laughs> i was getting paid active duty oh, pay nice. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that was it was fun i really enjoyed that part um of of my bamsi rotation and uh <coughs> then at one point i was you know in the little surgical makeshift sur- not surgical um like resuscitation bay where we had to resuscitate the patient and stuff and they have like these um, high, fi- what's it called? High fidelity, high fidelity mannequins that would like start hemorrhaging at one point or oh, would yeah. get pneumothoraxes or something like that. And mm-hmm. so you're throwing in chest tubes, you're like putting tourniquets on, you got to treat the, you know, all we, we learned ABCs, ABCDE, 
in the trauma and then like in the military they do march yeah what's that it's it's basically abc's but with massive hemorrhage at the front so (laughs) m stands for massive hemorrhage and then a is airway and then r is respiratory which is basically just breathing and then um Circulation. C is, yeah, circulation. And H is hemorrhage again? No, it's hy- <laughs> hypothermia. <laughs> hypothermia. But, um, but yeah, not not far off. <laughs> always always check for hemorrhage. If they're hemorrhaging, that's number one. <laughs> so, um, yeah, those are the only differences I'm aware of. Civilian, the most of them are treated like civilian with the occasional military shift and then the one exception is like the big military one that's bamsi and that's like this really specific military hospital that they receive civilian patients which is why they get so many patients going um and compete they they can compete with the other civilian uh hospitals for that reason um and they will really train you in military specific ways and you really feel like you're in the military when you're there the whole time so I hope that answered your question. I... You've been answering all my questions. Josh. Okay. Yeah, good. Uh, I'm really, really, <laughs> I, really pleased. So I kind of want to dive into what many people see as the most attractive aspect of HPSP, which is the financial benefits, because medical students in the civilian world, they're going into three hundred, four hundred thousand dollars of debt. So I want to kind of see how that compares to what you're getting out of HPSP or your yeah. experience. Let's do, you, do it. Yeah. And uh, kind of piggybacking off of that, do you think that you specifically, that you should do this for like the reimbursement or if like you really need to have a, like a true passion for the military? Like what are your thoughts? Um, let's, let's address that one first and then we'll get to the, uh, the one about what the finances look like. Just because I don't like you, Jack. That's mostly why. <laughs> Who does? <laughs> um, so in regards to what your motivation should be, if you talk to a recruiter, they will tell you everything you need to know. What They'll do it without, you, without them realizing they'll do it because they will try to sell you on it and they will sell you in the way that they think is convincing. And the way they think is convincing is finances. So if you talk to an rec- HPSP recruiter and they're trying to get you to join – they're going to break down the finances immediately. In fact, I got an email just this morning from my school email. They don't even know I'm in the HPSP. You all might have received this email too. But it's the Army HPSP, some um, um, some recruiter for HPSP. is The first one is just introducing the idea of HPSP. It provides scholarships for any student accepted attending these kinds of schools. The next paragraph is HPSP provides 100% of tuition costs, a $2,600 monthly stipend, reimbursement for books, equipment, school programs, associate fees, and there's a $20,000 signing bonus. That is the most important thing that they think to, to talk about. It's their, the number one thing is what they are and what schools they're paying for. And then the very next thing is what the finances look like. So... I know that there's, you know, all sorts of reasons that people give. It's kind of like it's kind of like in, in medicine too. Like everyone everyone on their on their application says that they want to save the world, right? They have very selfless reasons, but the finances of being a doctor is certainly a major and everyone kind of knows it and no one's allowed to talk about it, but it's a major component of why people want to do the career. It's a successful it's a successful career. Um 
So, it, you know, that's not the only reason people do it, being a doctor, um, but it's just, it's it plays a role. And in the same way, the finances play a major role in the HPSB thing. Um, and I think the finances play more of a role um, in HPSB than it than what the alternative, which is like why you want to be a doctor kind of thing. So it's front and center. Um, when people try to sell you on it, they're trying to they're trying to break down the finances. So I think that if you wanted to do it for the money, it's not a bad reason. And everyone, you know, when you write essays and stuff, people are going to tell you not to say that. So maybe don't say it, but or maybe do if you like having a very honest and, and upfront kind of presentation towards everybody. It's just going to be a number on your application anyway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I, I think it's perfectly reasonable to do it. Having said that, it's got a lot of like military obligations. And then so you have to be comfortable with being the military life. If, if the military life is something that's uncomfortable for you and you really like the, fi- the way the finances break down, you are not going to like your decision because you're going to have to learn to salute. You're going to be marching. Um, you're going to have a very strict hierarchy that you have to fit into. Um, it, like the whole nine. They're going to ship you around all over the world. Like these are all military-specific things. Um, at any point in time, you sold your soul to them. So at any point in time, they can just send you into combat zone if they really want to because you are not yours. You are theirs. And so getting – and that's like a big component of being in the military. And if that makes you uncomfortable, it's it's going to be there. And then so um, it, just because you like the finances, I, I think – I think it's reasonable to do it because of the finances, but if at any point in time you're uncomfortable with military ways, the military lifestyle, that you should not do it. I don't think there are many people who sit, like go into HPSB thinking, I really want to, you know, serve my country in a unique way, and like this is the way I'm going to do it. There are people like that, and actually, there's one case where. There is a doctor who was already a cardiothoracic surgeon, went through the whole system civilian, and then decided he wanted to give back in, in this specific way. So he went to the military, said, I want to, I want to like give back to the military. So he joined the military as a cardiothoracic surgeon, um, post everything. Yeah, I mean, I've heard of this as well. My buddy Josh, who you, you two have met, says that he went through training with a 50-year-old OB-GYN. So it's yeah, like yeah, there you go. People just decide people to make this change. And it's not uncommon. Yeah. But um, I think most people our age are mostly motivated by um, the, the financial aspect with some exceptions and with varying degrees of exception as well. Like some people, you know, they have an inkling towards it and they would be very open to it and they like the idea of it. But the finances really push them over the edge. You are, you are just comfortable. I've you got are. to be comfortable. <laughs> Four hours of podcast. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Um, so it's all, it's that whole range, I suppose. And I've met some people who I'm like, you would have done this no matter what. And some of those people are the ones that are doing this for the military. They're going to retire in the military. The people who are doing this and plan on retiring are, are not the ones that are doing it for the money because it's just not financially beneficial to do this all the way through your 20 years. Um, so those people have a, have a strong dedication to the military and what 
everything that entails. They, they like what the military stands for and what the military is about, um, and they want to be part of it. So those people probably much less motivated by money. But I would say most people who do it, the HPSP, are motivated primarily by the money and then secondarily to kind of the military and and what it stands for and stuff. So what were your motivations? Mine was the latter. I, I would say I was a lot more primarily interested in how financially um, I really hate debt. Um, so it seemed like a really good way to avoid that. Um, and I grew up in a military ho- household. My dad was Navy, um, which we mentioned earlier, actually. So I'm used to it. I'm used to strict hierarchy. I'm used to obeying orders. I'm used to the whole thing. And so none of it bothered me. I almost went into the Naval Academy, actually, when I was originally going to um, choose colleges for undergrad. So I'm used to the military. I'm comfortable with the military. And then once I learned that they would do all this, like, financial stuff for me, it was a no-brainer for me. And I want to go into a specialty that the military is big on. Do you think you're one of those people who will retire in the military then? Or do you plan to stay for a few years and then leave? I'll probably, probably, (laughs) probably (laughs) stay stay for uh, a few years and then then go civilian route. I mean, if they can really entice me with something important. Like if you were on the sauce team, then you would maybe stay longer, presumably. Maybe, yeah. Or, or if we get into a war and I'm particularly motivated by that, um, I might stay for patriotic reasons. I mean, it's not that I'm void of patriotism or anything like that. Like it's, it's just right now it's mostly financial because there's not much that our military is doing in my, in my opinion right now. That's like of dire importance that like requires a high level of patriotism and dedication to a cause you know it's, it's mostly just mundane just keeping the order kind of thing that's that's kind peacetime. of my impression yeah peacetime um so yeah there's a couple ways that i would stay um if there's a war that we started that i cared about or if i had a particularly good position in the military that i liked a lot then i would stay. but short of those things then i would probably just do my time and and, and get out and the thing about being a military officer though is you're never really out because um if we do go into like a wartime they grab the office previous officers get i guess like drafted they can pull in. you out of retirement oh yeah oh yeah what? you're never and that's not the same for enlisted enlisted you when you're out the it's much less likely that you'll get drafted but a, a military officer can pretty much just guarantee that they're going to get Wait, so this was back a question in. I had like 20 minutes ago. Are you given like a title in the military when you're a military doctor? Yeah. Do you have like a military title? I don't know anything about the hierarchy yeah. within the um, military. When you're in medical school, you're, you you always have a rank. Right. Um, I, don't, I don't know. Can you explain the ranking system for military dumb people like me? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we can pull it up as well. Um, there cool. are two tiers, basically. There's enlisted and there's officer. Enlisted has, you know, E. I don't. They might have E zero, but there's E one, E two. Yeah, eight or nine, and E E for enlisted. Oh, okay. So those are ranks. Um, so you know, zero is the least ranked, and then you know, nine is a very high ranking. That corresponds enlisted. to like years or skill level or just literally rank. But rank? How how are you ranked though? 
according to all sorts of things, both like <laughs> how long have you been in? Um, how well respected are you? Are you eligible for for uh, promotion? Okay, these kind of things. Like, you're, like going through the HPSP, you're gonna outrank people that have been there longer. That than was you. kind of my oh, question. Yeah. So, being a military physician puts you somewhere in the middle of the rank. Like, yeah, you're gonna... and, we'll, and we'll first break down the rank structure, and then and then we can say where these uh, okay. people fit in. So. Well, those are the officer ones. Right. Um, well, well I, I figured that we'd talk about officers since we're talking about. That's fair enough. Um, so we'll just, I'll just briefly mention that there's a whole enlisted ranking structure that's, that's underneath the officers. Okay. And like 80% of the military is enlisted. It's, it's the vast majority are enlisted. And they will, you know, if you enlist into the army or the military in general, um, you start off the bottom of the barrel enlisted you know one it's zero one i actually don't know um you can be a zero (laughs) you're an airman Uh, i know the rank i just can't remember if it's what the number is um e one yeah e one so that's the lowest ranking person in the military you cannot get lower than e one and then you know after a year or two you'll be available for promotion and you'll go to e2 and then after a year or two you'll go to year e3 right and at some point it stops being about time and it starts being about how your performance yeah so um when you start getting up to like e9 my great my granddad was an e9 in the army which is um of the highest you can get as as a very very high ranking individual um in the enlisted world um, and they have tremendous power um, and responsibility, both. Um, so that's kind of how the enlisted works. And then there's officer. An officer in O1 is technically higher ranking than any E enlisted rank, including the E9. Okay. Technically. Um so yeah, so I'm I am a second lieutenant. When you're when you're oh. in medical school, you're an O one. That's cool. Um, and you're higher ranking than eighty percent of the military out right out the gate. Um, now, <laughs> it's understood that <laughs> that you that if you start pulling rank on an E nine, you better buckle up. <laughs> it's like because it's talk to like the charge nurse and trying to. It, no, it's it's way worse them. than that. But yeah, it's it's like. The charge nurse is technically a nurse, but they're really like highly ranking in the nurse world. It's right. similar in the sense that enlisted, and an E nine is has such tremendous respect from everyone in the military that if you start pulling rank on somebody, because you're technically higher rank than E nine, but if an O one who has no experience, no reputation, and um, anything like that, and you start trying to you know enforce a rank structure on an e9 no one's going to back you on that and you mm-hmm. might get in trouble <laughs> so you don't like just because you're technically higher rank doesn't always mean that you get to pull rank you know willy-nilly and it's not considered very polite to pull rank normally anyway you, you only do that when um like you're really in a controversial situation okay um so by the time you go to military um, the residency, you'll be in 03. You skip 02 entirely. So in May, I'll be captain. And then you basically, cool. once you're at that point, you kind of rank as you normally rank. So I'll be a major by the end of residency or maybe. Huh? Yeah, you get better pay. There's additional pay. So. Well, then we got to dive into the pay before we got there. <laughs> how, how much more time do we have? 
We have we have five ten minutes. minutes. Ten minutes. Okay. Okay. Um, so let's just do five minutes. Do you all have any other questions before I just kind of give a summary? Well, let's uh, let's go ahead and go off of the pay structure really quick that Jack was asking. Yeah, like comparing the, the finances of civilian world, our situation versus the military world, your situation. Yeah. So. Oh, that's right. We, we we did originally want to do that, didn't we? My my mistake. So sorry, Jack. Most people, most civilians, they'll pay fifty thousand, roughly fifty thousand dollars a year, and then they'll pay you know for the room and board and stuff like that. And so at the end of it, you'll be taking out loans something like seventy seventy k a year. Is that roughly right, guys? About yeah. something close to that. So medical school will cost you somewhere around seventy thousand dollars a year. It's forty years. Boom. And then you're out and you know, whatever scholarships you can or extra money you can pile in to lessen that load. Law students do that. Um, and then, so there'll be somewhere, but you know, little low $200,000 in debt, somewhere around there coming out of medical school. And then when you're in residency, you'll make roughly 50,000, $55,000 a year for, you know, most of your residency. And then, so, you're really just scraping by up until the point where suddenly you get this massive pay jump and you're making several hundred thousand dollars a year as an attending. And that's kind of the civilian way of doing it. Um, and so you're a couple hundred thousand dollars in debt and then you'll live as a resident, you'll live kind of as a college poor. Yeah. College poor. Yeah. Um, until you're basically an attending and that's, that's how it works in the military. You don't have any of the debt, so you will not have to pay for your school at all. No tuition costs, anything like that. And they'll pay you a $2,600 stipend. Um, and that will... A month. A month, yeah. Um, and that is equivalent to, let's say, um, let's say $55,000 a year plus... Well, let's do actually let's 3,000 times 12. So like 30, 34K. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's like 31, 31K. Yeah. Um, plus the, let's say, plus the $55,000 of tuition. So you're making 86,000. Okay. Okay. Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll wrap this up. In the res, in residency, you'll also make more money. You'll make mid 80,000, $85,000 a year with none of the debt. Um, so you, so you come out debt free and then you're making 80, $86,000 a year or something like that. Um, and then once you're in attending, this is where the real change is. You'll, you'll make 120, $130,000, whereas your civilian counterparts will be making several hundred thousand dollars a year. So that's kind of the way it works. Um, we didn't really have time to like break down. No, we can keep talking and then slowly wrap up. Yeah, but we only have like a couple, like three minutes left or something. Do so. as much as you can. No big deal. Just yeah. go ahead. Go a little over. Um, so the well we don't really have to add too much to that um you could break down what that looks like in terms of money gained and money lost i suppose um if it's 86 uh times four you get a twenty thousand dollars signing bonus um so just leaving medical school before residency you will have the money equivalent of three hundred sixty five thousand dollars um, that's including the money you're getting for medical school, though. Um, and then um, you'll make 85 in residency. Let's say you do a uh, three. I'm doing a three-year residency. 
Um, so by the time you're you're done with residency, you you will have made uh, six hundred and twenty thousand dollars throughout the course of medical school residency. Um, so that's that's how much ahead you are over the you know civilian counterparts, and then you'll owe four years where you're making um, one hundred twenty five thousand dollars a year whereas your civilian counterparts are making several hundred thousand so depending on what your specialty is you know if you're making ortho money seven hundred thousand dollars a year is um you'll probably blow past what you would have made in the military but if you're making three hundred thousand dollars a year then it's probably a good investment so yeah that's that's kind of the finances i figure that would have been like the number one topic but we we barely fit that in um, so just to wrap it up, I guess we can go ahead and wrap up. Yeah. Um, yes. so we talked about a lot of things. Um, the big points is, uh, what are the reasons to do it? Finances are a perfectly legitimate reason. As long as you know, ahead of time that you have to be comfortable with the way the military works, mm-hmm. the moving, the rank structure, the customs and courtesies, the whole thing. Um, combat like you have to not that you're going to get in combat but you just have to be comfortable with that um so that's a big one um the finances is a is a big one that we just barely touched on at the end um kind of what it looks like you're coming out way ahead in the beginning but then as an intending you'll you'll be below your um, civilian counterparts and you'll have to calculate based on what kind of specialty you think you're going to get into how much you're really going to get ahead as an attending will it really will you really push ahead um the the military offers a nice smooth transition whereas the civilian world is like heavy in debt and heavy out of debt so um i like the smooth transition more anyway um the medical specialties they're not the same um some are in higher demand in the military some are in less demand in the military and so um Especially those higher end surgical specialties are really hard to get into in the civilian world. They're you know typically a little easier to get into the mil- in the military because um, there aren't as many people wanting to go that route because the attendings make so much that the finances don't really make as much sense. Um, I think that's a good wrap up. I mean, that's... between branches like Air Force versus Army. Oh yeah, um, I'm I'm Air Force, so I might be a little little biased, but um, and that's okay. <laughs> yeah, but the Air Force does have a reputation that the entire military recognizes that they're kind of the professional branch. They they call them the Chair Force, and um, that's fun. Yeah, but every, all of them have the little teasing things that they have for each other. But it's recognized widely that the Air Force, if you want to be professional, the Air Force is the most accommodating for professionals and so it comes as no shock that they're the most willing to let you go into civilian world if you want to do it for residency um, they'll pay you a little better the facilities are nicer things like that um, and uh, yeah and then there's the rotations are a little different the application process is it's a different application process but um, we went over that and you just look it up online and they've got little downloadable instructions for you and uh, just make sure that you know by November of your th- third year which which rotations you want to go do, and email those program directors, and so that they know you want to do it, and they'll t- they'll give you instructions on how to how to how to do a an away rotation at their facility. So. Thank you very much for that talk, Josh. Uh, yeah, very you're informative. welcome. <laughs>
Thank and, you for uh, carrying this episode. You're <laughs> welcome. <laughs> All right. Thanks, everyone. Bye.